0: Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: Welcome into the Inside Carolina On the Beat Live. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. We're sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt. JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Take care of them. They take care of us and they take care of you, the premium subscriber of Inside Carolina, with 10% off. To be live comes the usual crew of Greg Barnes, Gregory Hall running the wheels, and we have the man of the hour, Taylor vipless joining us after after Vip pulls the head coach at North Carolina to join him and Justin Jackson on the Rafters podcast. Vip, what was your biggest takeaway from talking to Coach Davis earlier? My biggest takeaway is that uh,
2: he's a fan of the movie The Notebook. Um, That would have to be the biggest thing. But uh, honestly, I just I always like hearing Coach Davis talk as somebody who is interested, who loves basketball, is interested in like the coaching aspect and the X's and O's and just hearing about, you know, how emotional he is when it comes to this North Carolina basketball team. And I think you're starting to see that kind of translate over to the players on this team. And I think it's one of the reasons why they are playing their best basketball um come March like like you saw all the time
1: with Roy Williams teams Greg talking about Hubert Davis and his passion I mean we've talked about that all year um but it clicked at some point in the last six to eight weeks for this team and you can see the difference on the court the connectivity the playing for others the not caring about who gets the success and all that kind of stuff um where did you see it specifically turn leading us to this point as Carolina heads to the Sweet 16 on Friday night?
3: Well, uh, two things of note there, Tommy. Number one, we got to see the open practice to, to start the season, which is great that UNC allowed us in. Um, and you could see some of that passion from Hubert. You could also see some of the team kind of being like, uh, okay, like we hear you, like good good job. It, I don't want to say it seemed forced, but the way the guys reacted almost was like it was forced. Um, It was his first practice as a, you know, as a North Carolina coach, all those things. Um, Those early days of him trying to connect with the guys of him trying to get his feet wet. We're long past that. And really when it hit for me was after the Pittsburgh game. Um, We made a big deal after Wake Forest and Miami, the guys were expecting, you know, really hard practices and they come in and, and Hubert's kind of like, all right, guys, look, I know we had bad games, uh, but we can do better. Like, we're a better team than that. Let's Let's just forget about it. Let's move on. That didn't happen after Pittsburgh. After Pittsburgh, they came back, were embarrassed, had a really hard practice, and Hubert stopped and said, all right, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're playing harder now in practice against one another than you did last night on TV against the ACC opponent? Somebody explain that to me. Um, And so just in hearing from the guys, that was a turn in how Hubert kind of addressed them. And that was something that really caught their attention. And since that Pittsburgh game, we've seen this team make significant strides. And I know that we've seen it on the court in terms of production on both ends of the court, but the way they communicate with one another, the way they openly care about one another, we did not see that early in the year. I mean, if you go back to Uncasville, I know uh, Jeff Goodman and Rob Doster had done a a podcast on court talking about these guys were not even talking to one another on the court and everybody saw it. Like there was no communication. There'd be a foul. There was no huddling up. It was very awkward and it did not bode well. I mean, look at them now. I mean, they, they are thrilled. They were thrilled to be able to go back into the locker room after the Baylor game to celebrate with Brady Manick. Um, I think that says a lot about how far this team has come. Um, I think it says a lot about the growth that Hubert Davis has had in year one. Um, But really since that Pittsburgh game, Tommy, I mean, this team has really turned it up. And I think, I think Hubert really getting after them after that loss uh, was the fire that they
2: needed. The biggest stat that kind of makes that point like tangible, I think through these first two NCAA tournament games, Carolina has 51 assists on 62 field goals where you're seeing guys who are enjoying each other's success, putting each other in the best spot possible. And when you when you're looking at 51 assists on 62 field goals, those are numbers that are like rivaling, you know, the, the 2016 team that went to the national championship against Villanova, the 2017 team that went to the championship and beat Gonzaga. Like that's how impressive they have been. And
1: you, you are seeing a team that is enjoying each other's success now, I think. Yeah, and, you know, what's the Dean Smith quote? It's amazing what we can accomplish when nobody cares who gets the credit. And I think that is what we've seen, and that's what you guys are explaining. And, Gregory, quite frankly, um, the Baylor game never happens if that cohesiveness and that growth – it doesn't happen on either end of it. The 25-point lead, the game itself, but the 25-point lead or the comeback for sure doesn't happen if this team's just not totally bought in To Coach Davis and also to each other. Yeah. And I mean, they played three
4: different games on Saturday, right? Like 30 minutes of just beat you down. We're better than you. We're more confident than you basketball. 10 minutes of holy crap, we suck.
1: I've and never then, seen the ball
4: before. Right. Like, I don't know how to inbound the ball. I don't know how to go against the press. And listening to Armando today, of try like explaining what was wrong against the press, they basically didn't do a single thing that they're supposed to do. He was like, well, we kept taking it into the corner, and then the guards were supposed to run long and they came close, and we we're supposed to have two guys set up in tees running out routes and they were running in routes. And it was just a complete mess and i can't imagine what the film review was like because hubert said they just looked at the 10 minutes and then overtime but to your point i loved what hubert said today about what he said in the huddle and it was very similar to what uh, i believe was the clemson game right before um the the game-winning play where he was just like he, he made the joke he was like all right guys we need to go play more basketball isn't that isn't that awesome and he was just like you could see everybody was like Coach, no, like we just we just blew a really big lead. Like, what are you talking about? And then the whole thing, it's like, guys, if I had told you yesterday that we had five minutes to beat Baylor in a tie game to go to the Sweet 16, would you take it? And they all said yes. He's like, all right, we have it. Like, we're here. Um, and then RJ took it upon himself, and they just – the maturity of the team, like two months ago, they're losing that game by 20 in overtime. Right. I mean, 20 might be an exaggeration, but they're just not even coming close to it. So it, it's it's pretty surreal when you look at 14 of 17 and five of their last eight games, they've won seven of them and five have been by double digits. And the only really game that was down to the wire, uh, obviously, the well, I guess Baylor game wasn't double digits, but the, the Virginia Tech game was down to the wire, the Louisville game and, and things like that. So it, it, it's pretty crazy.
1: Vip, you asked Justin Jackson, and I mentioned it on the post game with Dewey. I think I, that, that you're talking about a blur of a podcast. That that is one, but and I want you guys to comment. What's more impressive, the fact that they were blowing Baylor out of the gym, or the fact that they somehow um, won that game without Manic and Love? I think it's the fact that they were able to win that game after not only did the wheels come off, the engine blew up. And it ran into the deep ditch. I mean, uh, we've never seen a, a meltdown like that. And we can talk about the fishing aid and all you want. Carolina did a plenty to help it.
3: Nobody uh, has seen a meltdown like that. Like I know you texted tournament.
1: me. You texted me and you were like, "That was almost the biggest choke job in the history, <laughs> the NCAA basketball tournament." VIP, I think the fact that somehow they stitched it together with some uh, with some wire and some duct tape and managed to beat Baylor in overtime is more impressive than getting the lead in the first place. I think
2: in the moment, the fact that they were able to win without Manic and without Love was more impressive. But what I think we learned the most from and moving forward in the NCAA tournament, I think it would be – that the starting five was able to build a 25-point lead and, and run this Baylor team out of the gym because I think you've seen this team in spurts this year where it looks like they, they could put it all together. But I think outside of the the Duke game in Cameron Indoor, you really haven't had too many opportunities where you, you've seen this team put it together for you know longer than a, a four or five-minute stretch. And I think... On Saturday, Saturday was the first time where it kind of felt real, like this team does have enough talent, Um, even though I've been saying that I think me and Rel have kind of been on that, uh, planting our flag that this team has top 10, top 15 talent. Um, but Saturday was the first time that it felt real and felt some kind of validation that this team could be a team that goes to the final four or, you know, even, even in, in the wildest dreams cuts down the nets at, at the end of the season.
1: Greg, let me ask you about, and people are asking about Don styles and all, but you've covered Carolina for a long time. Now I've been paying attention for way too long and every tournament, every time Carolina has been in a tournament of note. Especially when they've won national championship. It's been a guy that did something in a game that nobody expected. I'll never forget Billy Packer giving Dean Smith hell for having Scott Cherry and Pat Sullivan in the court, on the court in 93 national championship game. Melvin Scott hits free throws against, I believe, Villanova um in 05. Dontres Styles is now taking that mantle. Justin McCoy was out there a lot. Uh, We could talk about him. He grew up a lot. Um, He he certainly had some struggle moments but made some big plays. But, Greg, it's styles that guy that gives Carolina an extra bonus aside from the starting five that Vip talks about being good enough to beat anybody.
3: Yeah, and let's not forget uh, Mr. May, of course, right, the big shot against Kentucky in the lead eight. Uh, back in seventeen, and he did nothing in the final four. But he didn't need to. That that really set his career moving forward. Yeah. Trivia
1: um, trivia question: How many points did Luke May score in the final four in two thousand seventeen? How many? Vip? I'm going to guess zero. Your guess is correct. <laughs> Go ahead. I mean, he Greg. played like seven minutes all year. So. He hit the one of the biggest shots in Carolina history, turned into be one of the best players in, in Carolina lore, and scored a zero. In the Final Four, just fascinating. So, a couple things here. Number
3: one, I think VIP is exactly right that uh, the way that the starting five played was phenomenal, um, and we haven't really seen this team stack impressive performances on top of one another. We've seen them beat a down FSU team, we've seen them beat a down NC State team, and a lot of times when they did that, they'd come back and they'd lay an egg. And that's been the story all season long. I mean, even after beating Duke, while they beat Virginia bad, I mean, they shot woefully in that, that first round of the ACC tournament. I mean, I want to say they were below 40% shooting. So while they played good defensively, it wasn't an all-around good performance. Well, they've stacked two excellent performances on top of one another. And against Baylor, I want to give credit where credit is due. I believe it is poster uh, UNC 879 wins. Uh, He does plus-minus after every single game. The starters, the five starters against Baylor, against a number-one seed, were plus-19. And we know Brady Manick went out with 10 and a half minutes left. Plus-19 against the number-one seed. Phenomenal. Um, And not only were they really good offensively, they were really good defensively. So what happens? Brady Manick goes out the wheels fall off, uh, officials helped a little bit, of course, but they were wobbled. And, uh, when Baylor tied it up and forced overtime, I didn't think, I didn't think Carolina had much of a shot. And then Don styles hits one of the biggest shots in Carolina basketball history that won't ever get the credit that it deserves. And what did RJ Davis say today? He said, as soon as that shot went in, RJ looked around and said, we're good. And I think everybody watching felt the same way because as soon as that shot went down and Baylor, who had battled back from 25 down to tie it, saw that they were down once again by three points, it was like the balloon let out of that building. The the air let out of the balloon in that building. Uh, Just a massive shot. And for him to play, what did he play, 25 minutes, career high? And he played a lot of minutes early, too. It wasn't like he just played after Brady got knocked out. Uh, and he, he's just been playing well. He's a key component for this team, I think, in the weeks to come if North Carolina is able to continue this run. Because as Baycott said today, they really don't have any depth in the post. It's, it's Baycott and Brady, and that's it. And so if Styles can step in and give you quality minutes there, uh, that's good. But more importantly, that sets the tone for him moving forward. Uh, you know, he, he's got a, gr- a bright future ahead of him. Great athlete, but what a what a clutch shot by a young man. I'll
1: so tell you what. You mentioned
4: – uh, oh, sorry, Tommy. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, my bad. If, if Carolina goes on to win the nice National Championship, people will talk about that shot. Sure. Forever. Yeah. Absolutely. That'll be the uh, that'll be the Villanova and the Sweet 16 play. The tie loss
3: then in the second half against Arkansas. Yeah. All, uh,
1: that, all those type things um, contingent on winning the nice National mm-hmm. Championship. Certainly the biggest shot of the season. Go ahead, Gregory.
4: Yeah. Um, one, there's a bunch of new posters in the chat. So shout out to y'all for commenting for the first time. Glad you're here. Second, Greg, you mentioned the starters. Um, Evan Maya brought up his analytics before, right? Uh, so he tracks two man lineups, three man lineups, four man lineups, five man lineups. You look at the five man lineups. Of the remaining sweet 16 teams that UNC's five starters are fifth in offensive efficiency and then sixth overall when you take into defensive efficiency. Iowa State's I, his offense is lower. Their defense is higher. However, UNC starting five has played 840 possessions together. The next highest in the Sweet 16 is Arizona that's played 500. And, oh, no, Gonzaga's played 755. And then Arizona's played 560 no one else has played more than 400 possessions together. So when Hubert talks about chemistry and cohesiveness, it's almost forced at this point because they yeah. played 840 possessions together.
2: And you can make an argument. That's <laughs> that's the only reason that they've kind of figured it out is everybody kind yeah. to play so much together.
4: And they're one of the most efficient
2: on the, like, it's
4: like, they've played 840 positions, but they're still like top five in the country and re- with the remaining teams. Like, it's not an accident that this team is in the Sweet 16.
1: It's fascinating to watch their development. Like you said, uh, forced chemistry. And they've had to do it, but it's worked out. Vip, um, when you're talking to Justin Jackson, you're talking to Coach Davis earlier, um, and you guys discussed styles and all, and not dontres styles, but styles of play. And Hubert Davis has spoke openly about his love for Brady Manic. I mean, uh, we'll talk about this a lot, and, and but I just, I don't think there could have been. There's never been a better marriage in player to style than Brady Manick to Hubert, what Hubert Davis needed this year. I mean, and we're seeing it sort of pay fruits here in the NCAA tournament.
2: Yeah, that was one of the numbers that I pulled up um, when when I was looking at how impressive the 51 assists to 62 field goals was the other stat that I was kind of debating, which one was more impressive was Brady manic scoring 54 points in 61 minutes through the first two tournament games. And I, I think the biggest takeaway from talking to coach Davis and talking to Justin Jackson is like when coach Davis envisioned his, his new like modern style of offense and having somebody like Armando Baycott in the post, Brady Manic, you couldn't get a more perfect compliment to what Coach Davis wants to do. When you're also considering the fact that Armando Baycott is is manning the post down low, and he's he's able to run so many you know stack pick and roll options where Davis comes off a screen, Manic is is flaring out for a, a top of the three, and then all of a sudden the defense they have so many things that they're, they're trying to account for that. You're seeing why Carolina is getting a lot more, uh, better looks as, as coach Davis has trusted Davis more and more as the season has kind of went on. And I, I think that you really couldn't have asked for a better year from Brady man, Brady manic in terms of, you know, expectations and, um, how he's, how he's been able to kind of handle, everything that's kind of come with being a Carolina basketball player this season.
4: Yeah. Vip, and you mentioned the system. Um, Hu- Hubert was asked about it today and I thought it was interesting. He pointed to around the Boston college time. I believe that's when Puff was out with COVID. Um, was it Puff?
3: I think it was McCoy who was out. Okay. Yeah, McCoy, McCoy was-, was out with
4: COVID and Dawson got his concussion. Yeah. And, Hubert pointed to that as they started to tweak some things offensively and with Dawson out and Brady, when Brady wasn't in, they had to put leaky at the four and Hubert saw how well it worked in practice playing small and was kind of like, this is going really well. Like I like this. And since then has even moved Brady more into that kind of smaller four lineup, less, like when he hits the post, it's it's not really to post up as much as it is to cut or off ball screens and things like that. And that's kind of where's the evolution of that offense. And Brady has really fit in since then, since it's even more of a four out one in than it was. Because when Dawson was here, it, they really did have two guys in the post at times. Not every time, but still more so than we've seen now. And that's kind of I thought that was interesting of him pointing to that time frame as kind of the evolution of the offense that we see now. Like it hasn't been this way all year.
2: Yeah, Justin was talking about how how big a mismatch Manic is at that small ball for a lineup, and I think the other thing from Coach Davis was that, you know, he he is willing to tweak his offense. He is willing to get input from somebody like Coach Sullivan, who has eighteen years of experience in the NBA. Somebody like Jeff Lebo, who was a college head coach and a coach in the G League, and is familiar with having to adapt your offense to the the more modern times. And, you know, he he was talking about Justin's national championship team and he was like, you know that team had tony bradley it had isaiah hicks it had kennedy meeks i wouldn't be running the same offense that i am today if i had that personnel so i think if you're a carolina fan it has to be encouraging to hear how willing to adapt your head coaches to to whatever kind of personnel and whatever changes because you do have a lot of coaches who they have their system they're going to run their system they're going to try to recruit for their system and if pieces don't fit. They're going to keep trying to fit that that circle into a square peg until, you know, their their season kind of flames out. But coach Davis has been on the forefront to make adjustments and make changes to his his offensive and even the defensive schemes to fit his personnel better and that's one of the reasons why Carolina is playing past the first weekend.
1: Yeah, I I think the ability to adapt on the fly and to change things on the fly is something that he's he's done incredibly well. Let me ask about R.J. Davis or ask about R.J. Davis. And, Greg, I want to get your thoughts on this. I don't know if I've ever seen a guy go one for 10 with 12 assists and then less than 48 hours later go for 30. I mean, tell me that's something we've seen before because I can't recall. And – not only did he have the 12 assists, I mentioned the 1-for-10 shooting um, and to come back with the 30 after that. That's as impressive as a run for a Carolina point guard or Carolina lead guard that I can recall. For sure, and you know, I think he was
3: the catalyst uh, in Cameron. I mean, the way that he ran the offense and controlled the ball, especially in the second half, uh, was impressive. And we just haven't seen that type of point guard play. Carolina in a couple years. And so that was, that was really impressive and speaks to uh, you know, beginning of the year. It was very much a, yeah, you know, Caleb and, and RJ are both kind of kind of run the show. And what we've seen last month or so is it's RJ is the point guard. There's, there's no question about it. Um, so you expect him to be able to, to run the offense, but the way that he stepped up and was just willing to knock down shots me had eight points, the first what three minutes on Saturday. Um it just kind of speaks to his development and his confidence more than anything. And Ross asked him during the press conference on Tuesday, and it was, it was a good point. Um, the fact that he's able to hit some of these incredibly difficult shots in the paint reminds me a little bit of Marcus Page. Uh, Marcus Page had a little bit of problems early in his career where he'd get inside and uh maybe get some shots blocked or at least have to change his, his attempt because he's, he's such a small guy. Uh, RJ is is so quick with getting the ball up and taking correct angles. We didn't see that last year, and we didn't really see that at the beginning of the year. And that has been an incredible development for him to where now when he drives, teams have to take account for him. And that makes it easier for him on the perimeter. And while he's, he's not the first guy looking for a shot, that's Brady and that's Caleb. Um, he's willing to knock them down. And he's had some really good games this year, played really well against Syracuse, and of course the Duke game. Uh, but for him to lead the team the way that he did, both in facilitating on Friday or Thursday, and then scoring 30, like you said, on Saturday, just, just a heck of a weekend.
4: Three things on that. One, it was Adam's question. Sorry. because Sorry, Ad- Adam. Because Adam was like, because he was like, you know, no offense, but you don't really have any hops. And RJ was like, what? Excuse you? Um, two, he made a very similar drive at the end of the game against Louisville, got his stuff swatted and went to overtime. Three, and he talked about it today, the I think it's part of the maturing process. He recognized that he did not do what he was supposed to do at the end of regulation, right? He settled for a jump shot, he got the mismatch and he said he was supposed to drive. Well, then in overtime he drives gets the and one and does that tough finish. And I, and I think those two things are just showing who RJ has become because he got his stuff swatted in a very similar drive because he didn't adjust. He just went up as a smaller guy and then in game made the adjustment to drive and seal, seal the game with that. And one.
3: Yep. And Tommy, I, not to jump around. So I apologize, but I don't want this to get lost. Brady Manick against uh, tier A opponents. So Ken Palm ranks that as top 50 opponents in his rankings. He's shooting 41% from three against top 50 comp- uh, opposition Oof. this year. Phenomenal.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there there are times I mentioned it when he missed five shots the other night. I don't remember him missing five shots. I mean, it just looked like everything he threw up went in. Um, back to RJ, one could argue that the first three of the game for Carolina um, – Change the trajectory, possible trajectory of that game because it was 4-0 Baylor and they were rolling. And that was, what, a late last second shot clock shot that cut it to 4-3 and then Carolina jumped off. Let's take a short break. Talk about Johnny T-Shirt and T-shirt.com. Uh, great sponsors of Inside Carolina. Great sponsors of this podcast. They certainly support us. We need to support them. Shop local. Um, take care of them on the Inside Carolina uh, if you're a premium subscriber with Inside Carolina, get your 10% off, but go see them on Franklin Street. It's baseball season in Chapel Hill. Um, might be storming Franklin Street here in a couple of weeks. Uh, go see Johnny T-Shirt while you're there. Look after them. They've got all the gear you could possibly want for Carolina, Carolina sports-related tailgating, everything. They're our good friends. They need to be your good friends. You need to take care of them. Let the national guys pay the bills. We'll be right back with On the Beat. We're going to talk a little UCLA and the Sweet 16 when we come back. back with on the beat live i'm tommy ashley that's greg barnes gregory hall and taylor vipolis joining us a lot of questions guys in the chats um, about how carolina deals with ucla i think it's a pretty good matchup for carolina um injuries or not for ucla we saw the jacques go down late in, in their 32 round of 32 game greg a lot of people talk about who leaky guards. I mean, is there really a question who leaky guards in this game?
3: There's not. Um, it's uh, Johnny Juzang. I, I think that's pretty, pretty easy. I, I think it sets up well for him. I mean, when you talk about injuries, um, and it's Jacques. Jacques. Uh, yep. He, uh, he is the one that had the, the bad ankle injury. He's battled ankle injuries throughout his career. He's a tough kid. So all expectations are that he will play. But he's not going to be at 100%. He did not practice today. They've got him on a day-to-day thing. Uh, he may go through shoot-around before the game in the days leading up, but I don't expect him to do much more than that. Uh, but he's got to defend Brady unless they decide. They've got other options. they got they got some good depth. So they've got other guys they can bring in to defend Brady, but then you, you lose basically your heart and soul in, in He's He's been kind of a hoss – Tough guy for him. Um, Cody Riley's their center. I think you know, he's a big physical guy. He's not an elite talent, and so I think Baycott has an advantage there. And then you get into the guard play, and it's not like UCLA has these massive guards. They have skilled guys, uh, but but nobody that's going to overpower RJ or Caleb. So yeah, I, I think it's a good matchup for Carolina. I mean, UCLA is very solid. Uh, you know, they don't push tempo very methodical they're, they're good on both ends of the court um so there's nothing that you can really say okay well this is a weakness we can exploit it you're going to have to play well but there's really nothing that ucla does that you look at carolina and say eh, they're going to really struggle against that so um, I, I think given that this is a sweet 16 game it, it, it works in carolina's favor uh, on a lot of these boxes it's crazy yeah. how
4: slow ucla plays like considering how efficient and good their offense is like I mean, they're 270th in tempo, but their offense is 12th. I don't know if I've seen those type of numbers before. That's like Virginia-esque, but it right. doesn't
1: look like Virginia when they play. Virginia's Vip. offense has never been that efficient. It's well, the bright right lights the of Hollywood. <laughs> what uh, what matchup are you looking forward to, Vip?
2: Uh, it would probably be leaky and... Johnny Juzang if if that's the matchup Hubert Davis goes with and I think that's the matchup everybody kind of expects just because you have such a a dynamic offensive player in Juzang who who made this incredible final four run last year and then you have somebody like Leaky Black who I think the term that gets thrown around with him is he's he's essentially an eraser where you put them on the other team's best player and he kind of disrupts the entire flow of what that other team is trying to do. If you can't go, if you're cutting off the head of, of their best player. Um, so if Leakey can get an advantage there, it, it kind of sets this the rest of the Carolina team up for more success on the defensive end and UCLA they're, they're, they're never, they're not like a, from the games I've watched, they're not really a physical, um, like a team that wants to, you know, just beat you up with physicality where Baylor tried to do that. Marquette tried to do that, but they do have, um, I would say they have good length for starting four guards. Um, Tiger Campbell's the only one who's 5'11 and then everybody else in their starting lineup is 6'7 or above. So I think seeing who who Caleb Love guards would be another interesting aspect because they're, they're all about Six, seven, six, eight, kind of in that range. And you would assume Campbell's going to be guarded by by Davis. So UCLA um, doesn't really have the opportunity to take advantage of them because I think you've seen, even going back to the, the Virginia Tech game, Virginia Tech, Marquette, Baylor, all their first couple of possessions have been trying to put R.J. Davis in the post and trying to post him up. So I don't think UCLA has that um luxury when you're starting
1: somebody like Campbell who's who's checking in under six foot I think it's a great matchup for R.J. Davis and that's when I look at Carolina's defensive matchups we know Leaky's going to take somebody out of the game Baycott's going to take the biggest guy I think in this game Carolina matches up as good as you can expect at this level now lead eight might be a little different depending on who wins the game on the other side of the bracket, but tiger campbell and rj davis will be a fantastic matchup to watch because i don't think they're that big a difference type player i mean everybody's gonna say the hair and the style and all um and the size i mean but i think they play pretty similar gregory um we're some we haven't looked at i mean i man, got, i think man it needs to be big i think caleb love question i'll start it here i'll give you this Can UNC survive another five-point performance by Caleb Love? I freely admit I didn't think they could have the other day, but they did. Yeah, I mean, it's
4: easy to say no just because Caleb's five-point performances usually come with mistakes attached to it. So um, it's it's very often he has a five-point performance with I mean, he's never had a five point performance with 12 assists like RJ Davis had, right? Uh, you know, so if he can do that, then yeah, fine. If he can create shots, which he might be able to with um, the way R- like with Tiger Campbell guarding RJ, RJ might be able to hunt his shot more off the ball. So it'll be interesting to see what that happens. Um, since if UCLA switches, maybe not, but if he doesn't, it'll be interesting to see that. But one thing that I'm curious to see is, when UCLA has the ball, how often they go five out and try to pull Armando away from the basket and try to get UNC in one-on-one defense. And I think even that even though UNC has gotten better defensively, which we we can all agree on that, they've been able to stay with their man more, move their feet better across the board, not just leaky, they're still outside of leaky susceptible to one on one. And so if UCLA can pull Armando out and go five out a majority of possessions in their slow half court methodical offense, I think that could make you and that could cause struggles for you and see on the defensive end. So I'm curious how often, if at all, UCLA goes that approach. Cause that'd be one thing I would look at to try to mix things up and try to frustrate Baycott and pull him away from the basket
1: thing about it is if you play five out, then you still got to play on the other end of the court and Vip, that leads Baycott to have a smaller guy on him. And he's going to destroy that guy. If he can stay out of foul trouble.
4: Well, I just mean with their, I mean, they've got four guys that are six, seven. So it's just like, they don't, it's not like they would like their lineup is small. It's not like they would be doing something differently. Like there's going to be a mismatch on the offensive end for UNC with Baycott. They there's just going to be. And even with Brady to a certain extent, um, but on the other side of the ball, I, I think it would behoove UCLA to take advantage of being undersized and, and not make because Baycott's been become a serious rim protector recently. He's he's been able to block block more shots than he has earlier in the season. So that's why I'm kind of looking for that.
1: What do you think, Vip?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting point and in having trying to pull Baycott out. Um, you look at somebody like Riley, who's Baycott's projected matchup, and you know he's he's only shot like eight threes this season, um, but he's hitting them at four, he's four for eight. So it's it's like he's shown he's capable of hitting threes, but he really hasn't shown that he's that comfortable to step outside. And maybe maybe it's a case of the Pac-12 they just really didn't need him to kind of stretch the floor and pull him out from the um, pull them out from the interior. But I think the, the other thing I'm kind of looking forward to seeing with Baycott when it comes to like the X's and O's is how Mick Cronin kind of handles Armando Baycott on the defensive end, because like, like Gregory was just mentioning when Carolina is on offense, they're going to, they should have a huge advantage with Baycott down low and what he kind of can do offensively. And you saw you saw a team uh, like Virginia Tech, Mike Young, he got pretty creative through different looks at Armando Baycott all game, threw his rhythm off the, the team for whatever reason, You know wh- whether it was Baycott's uh, uh, a lack of getting Baycott involved or just tired legs, Carolina was never in that game from start to finish. So I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how McCronin handles uh, Armando Baycott and tries to take away carolina's biggest advantage
1: most likely greg how do you see that shaking out one thing that uh, against virginia tech that i noticed and i've really admit i didn't go back and watch it but when they doubled baycott in a variety of ways it was always leaky that was in the corner um i would have probably tried to swap and put caleb down in the corner and let force caleb's man to try to double from the angle they were doing but greg how does ucla how do you think Cronin – because I, I kind of like Cronin, you know, and I, I've always kind of liked UCLA, to be honest with you. And we saw the run that they had last year, um, so they're certainly capable. But how do they deal with with Baycott inside, you think?
3: I think what we've seen out of North Carolina the, the first two games and really the the last month of the season is that they can really shoot the ball from outside. And so if you get in a situation where you're trying to double bake out in the post, then you get into help rotation. And if Carolina's moving the ball the way that they should be, RJ or Caleb or Brady's going to get a pretty good look from three. Uh, I think that's dangerous because if Carolina gets hot, we've talked about all year when, when they, when somebody gets hot, it's like the whole team gets hot. But if somebody's cold, a lot of them get cold. Uh, and you don't want Carolina to get hot. And so I think when you've got guys like Cody Riley and Miles Johnson, who are, who are big athletic guys, um, they're they're not e- elite talents necessarily, but they're they're effective at what they do. They can defend Baycott. Is Baycott going to win his his battles? Sure, of course he is. Uh, but would you rather him score sixteen points or eighteen points, and you do a pretty good job on the perimeter? Or would you rather shut down Baycott and hold him to 12 points and Brady gets a couple open looks that gets him going? Uh, I, you know, Virginia Tech had no choice because they're small. I and mean, Justin Mutz is, is not a, a true center. He's a power forward. is L- the same way. Uh, but I think when you've got legitimate size in the post like UCLA does, you just play man up. And if you want to you know, drop some double screen, or double, uh, what am I trying to say here? Some uh, double teams, sorry. Occasionally, sure, you can mix it up. But if if that's your game plan all day long, I think you're going to have problems. So so play man up and really make sure you defend the, the perimeter to the best of your ability. Uh, that, that's probably your best bet if, if you're looking at it from a UCLA perspective.
1: Somebody in the chat said, let Baycock get his and then, don't let Carolina get hot from the outside. The problem is, is, if Baycott gets both. What's the bigger stat, Gregory? Baycott eighteen points or Baycott fourteen rebounds? Granted, he does this. He does. I was going to say that's them.
4: probably his stat line on Friday.
1: <laughs> but but if he goes ten and fourteen, is that better for UCLA than if he goes eighteen and six? You know what I mean? That means Carolina's not rebounding the ball as yeah, well. Yeah, ten though. and fourteen would be better. I mean, because that means.
4: Cause that means if he's not getting the rebounds, there's probably. I mean, other UNC players rebound the ball, but it also probably means UCLA is hitting a lot more shots. And I, I think Baycott just and the way I think it's funny the way everyone on UNC says it they talk about Baycott, he's like, you know, Armando does what Armando does, like, it's just like expected like they all talk about yeah RJ was hot like he's he's gotten so much better he's making shots when Caleb's on when Brady's on all this stuff and they're just like yeah like Armando you know doing his thing down there which he's should be able to do and to answer your question if it's 18 and 6 I don't
2: think UNC wins compared to if he's 10 and 14 that's a that's a great point about Baycott that it's almost like an afterthought 100% where- where Davis has kind of had his moments, Love has his moments, Manic has his moments, and then you're you're so used to Baycott putting up you know 16 and 12 what he's averaged this this entire season, and then the the broadcast starts talking about it, or you get stats sent out, and it's like the last person that kind of put up these kind of numbers on this kind of efficiency that Baycott has put up was Tim Duncan at Wake Forest. And it kind of puts everything back into perspective. Like, yeah, he he is the best player on this team, and he's probably been the most consistent player from start to finish.
4: He's at 27 double-doubles, I believe. So if they win on Friday, he literally has a chance to tie the all-time ACC record of
1: 29, which is held by Tim Duncan. Yeah, I've been watching the ACC tournament thing. And of course, I remember it because that was right in the heyday. But Tim Duncan was just a monster. It, it You want to get to blood boiling. Let's talk about Leakey and Baycott not getting some postseason ACC awards, but they're bigger fish out there to fry. Greg, what are we missing with this matchup? Hold on. Can and I ask Greg re- a question? If you'd like, sure.
4: Um, Scott Holland brought up the question about comparing Baylor and UCLA's defensive numbers. As far as Ken Palm and efficiency, they're like 91.0 and 91.1. How are their defenses different as far as what we'll see on the court Friday? I'm curious your thoughts on that.
3: Well, Baylor is very much an aggressive on ball defensive team. And so, what, what they did, they, they averaged 18 and a half points off turnovers per game, which is crazy. Uh, just because they got in the passing lanes, they were very I mean, their guards are great, they're very good at the point of attack and they, they turn you over and get up and down the court at a, at a quick pace. UCLA's not like that. They, they do a very good job with team defense. They're a very good rebounding team. And that's what you – know, when you start talking about efficiency numbers, one of the reasons Carolina always ranks at the top is because they're like top five nationally in offensive rebounding percentage. And that's important because you don't have to shoot very well if you get all the offensive rebounds because you get multiple possessions – uh, in one trip down the court and so UCLA does a very good job uh, turning their opponents over it's not an elite level they do a very good job defensive rebounding and then they're very good uh, in with staying with their man uh, and doing a good job with help rotations so all across the board they're very solid there's there's not one particular thing kind of like Baylor does uh, UCLA is just a very good well-coached team
1: it, it- I guarantee you that they may play similar defense numbers-wise, but they ain't going to be the same defense. Nah. No. I mean, Baylor is in your face sometimes deeper than that, um, as we saw on Saturday. Um, you know, it was interesting. When I was watching Baylor play Carolina, and they were up 25 minutes before it went all the, off the rails, and Carolina was in the bonus at, what, 15-minute mark of the second half, I was like, this game's over because they can't play solid defense without fouling. And Carolina just shoot free throws for the rest of the game. Similar to what the Carolina women did against Arizona when they got that lead. Arizona couldn't play defense without getting fouls called. We saw how it kind of went with the men. Vip, I'll come to you since Gregory um, had that great question for Greg. And what are we missing here? What are we missing about this matchup? Why do we feel, at least I do, why do I feel so good about Carolina matching up against UCLA whereas – there's a matchup on the other side of the bracket um, with Purdue, potentially with Purdue, that I would not feel good about. Why does UCLA seem like a good one for Carolina?
2: I think the fact that they're not coming in 100% healthy is reason to feel better about Carolina's chances. And then I, I also think that Hubert Davis has mentioned it, you know, 40,000 times the, the past month and a half that this is the healthiest his Carolina team has been up to this point where you you see guys who are enjoying playing with each other. They're, you know, we, we haven't talked about their effort. We haven't talked about their toughness in, you know, a month and a half. And if, if this team does go out of the tournament on Friday, it, it's not going to be because of their toughness or because of their effort. It's most likely going to be, you know, UCLA, just playing great team defense containing Carolina shots certain things just didn't fall Carolina's way and you know you you get to 16 teams left in the tournament it's e- either one of these teams can win um so I I'm I'm looking forward to this being a good matchup between two coaches that kind of have their team um playing their best basketball I think Mick Cronin kind of showed that last year where his team gets their they go from the playing game to the final four and it's it's almost the, the same exact team that he brought back um, this season. And then you have a coach like Coach Davis in his first year who's kind of learning on the fly, making adjustments. And then the other thing I was going to say about that is you mentioned not really wanting to play Purdue. I, I think I'm on the opposite side. I don't want to play St. Peter's if I'm Carolina. How do you root against St. Peter's, man?
1: <laughs> I would <laughs> love to see Carolina play Just
3: because game. of the zone? Is that what you're thinking, Taylor?
1: I, I don't want to no, play because they got New York City boys. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to
2: play uh. these guys with a chip on their shoulders. Shaheen Holloway is kind of taking the tournament by storm. If you get if you get to Sunday, the problem is for Carolina, you're going to have your fans in the building, and then everybody else is going to be rooting for St. Peters. Everybody in America is going to be rooting for St. Peters if you get to an elite match, elite eight matchup against them.
4: You know Greg, what do you want for, to uh, do you, uh, you want order. to inform Taylor about what chip on shoulder means?
3: Now, why don't you go ahead, Gregory? I think that was fascinating.
4: So I was curious, right? We're sitting in the bowels of Dickie's arena and I don't know. They kept bringing it up and I was like, where the where the heck does that come from? So it's from the 1830s. There's like a sports art, not a sports article. But there's like an article in some Syracuse paper talking about b- boys that were looking for a fight. So if they were just like angsty, you know, they would put a piece of wood on their shoulder and walk around, daring people to knock it off and start
1: a fight. (laughs) That is hardcore. So it literally means chip of wood on the shoulder. And like, uh, uh, didn't they used to put like something on the shoulder and say, "Knock it off, I dare you." It was some commercial, anyway. And Gregory, I know you're a
2: big, uh, you're big Ken Palm guy, St. Peters their offensive efficiency rating is 226 at go ask Kentucky.
1: If they think St. Peter's offensive efficiency, is in the 200. <laughs> I'd rather Carolina play St. Peter's. I'd rather Carolina get there first. Um, so we'll have something to talk about, but, um, yeah, I, I think Carolina matches up well against UCLA, Greg, last question for the show and everybody can chip in, chip in if they want. get it. Gregory chip. Uh-huh. Uh, how, how does Carolina? I cut Greg win this? off, by the way. So if he had something to say, and I'm cutting you off now, you know what? It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, you had gotten better on that. Greg, how, how? what does Carolina do? Give me some numbers that will, if I just look at the numbers at 1130, 12 o'clock on Friday night, I'll say, well, Carolina won that game.
3: Well, over the last month of the season, Carolina, I think, is top 10 nationally in, in defensive efficiency. Um, And so while we can talk about the offensive production, which has been elite at times, they've been really good defensively. And I I think in order to beat UCLA – because UCLA is crafty offensively. They they are fun to watch. I know people don't like to watch Virginia. Virginia is one of those teams, to me it's kind of like hockey. Like if you watch it in person, it's much more entertaining. Uh, But UCLA has some very skilled offensive players. A lot of guys with high offensive ratings – um, and they're going to be able to score. They don't rely on the three-point shot necessarily, uh, but I think they're going to be able to get some points. Um, and so if Carolina does a really good job defensively, that reduces the necessity for Carolina to be hot from three. And even if Carolina is hot from three, if Carolina plays good defensively, that sets the stage for potential you know, 10-0 burst, like we've seen a lot lately. You, know, you get a 10-point lead on UCLA, it was their style of play, it's going to be tough for them to really kind of battle back. Uh, so I, I think it begins on the defensive end. If Carolina can hold UCLA under, say, 42%, uh, I think that'll give you a pretty good indication that Carolina's advancing to Elite Eight. And what I was going to say is, if they win the Elite Eight game, we may finally, finally, finally yes! get UNC Duke in the Final Four.
1: Give me it. Give me it. Bring tell, all of it. You can tell a in there. Um, I don't, I don't know now. Texas Tech's pretty strong. I was strong. Tell, I was talking to Brendan Marks about that, and he was like,
4: "God, no, please, no!" And I was like, "What, what do it? you mean?" I was like, "Bring it on!" He was like, "It would upset the balance of the rivalry." Nah. I don't give a f.
3: Coach K is on the way out. Roy's already left.
1: Let's blow it all up. Thank you. The uh, playing in the semifinals wouldn't upset it. it. Playing in the national championship would change everything. Because It wouldn't matter if you won 100 straight, they'd be like, Still got you for the national championship. <laughs> Vip, what's the headline? Last question of the day, Gregory. I'm cutting you off with that. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, uh, you can come talk to me on Saturday. Oh, and you're by the way, are you in town? Yep, so we're going to do the post game live with a special guest after the uh Carolina UCLA game. Vip, what's the headline? Um, Saturday morning when we wake up, if Carolina advanced,
2: I would. I would think it, it would be um kind of going back to the leaky JuZang point earlier where Leaky wins the matchup and you, you know if JuZang is a, a single digit scorer on Saturday I think that that would have to bode well for Carolina's chances to win this matchup if if you're if you're you know if he's not having an efficient game and the other thing that I think should give UNC fans some confidence is is the fact that the ACC is eight and two in in this NCAA tournament so far, where everybody was kind of down on the ACC all year, and all they've done this tournament is just win games. And they they have three teams in the Sweet 16, while most conferences have have one or maybe two at best. And I think I think the way that Duke, North Carolina, and Miami are all kind of playing right now um, should inspire some confidence. In the conference as a whole, that you know, maybe maybe these are the the most tested and the the most prepared teams heading into the second weekend of the tournament. How about Fun. how the Hurricanes played? Their guard, I, I would not that, want Gregory? to play their guards. I would I was, not want to play their guards. I love I watching phenomenal. them play. Their guards are dogs. I would not want anything to do with
1: them. So, let's, let's do this. Who advances to the Final Four? Well, give me the Final Four teams. We won't pick Carolina's bracket because you guys are covering the game. We'll do the old Herb Street rule. Who comes out of the West? Gregory. Uh, Arizona.
4: They get back on track
1: after – are they in the West? No. Duke's in the West. Gonzaga and oh. Duke. It, Gonzaga will get to the Final Four. V- West.
2: Texas Tech.
1: I like it. Greg, West.
3: Gonzaga. I got them winning the whole thing.
2: I, I'm playing devil's advocate right here because I do have Gonzaga winning. <laughs> <My God. laughs> I have this Arizona. Is, this, is, this is the bracket second chances. I'm switching. I, I I've seen enough. I think I'm switching.
1: I, uh, I have, a uh, Arizona beating Kentucky, so I'm still alive in, in at least one matchup in the entire bracket. Uh, I think I'm dead last in my family bracket. You got to be kidding. And that includes kids, family, We even adopted a kid and got him in there. Cause he didn't that it's been awful. Absolutely. Awful. Boys, it's been fun. So we we didn't next. finish
4: the we've got two more brackets to go through there,
1: homeboy. Well, y'all they already picked their winner. Yeah, East. East, Gregory. Uh Carolina's bracket. Do it again. Well, I was gonna say, well, my
4: I'd see my head's lost. Um <laughs> who does Kansas play? Providence. Oh, uh, probably Kansas then. Either Kansas or Miami.
1: I'll go I Kansas.
2: I have Kansas.
1: I had well, you know who I had. Sherelle has Gonzaga. I just don't believe in Gonzaga, though. Drew Timmy went off the other night. That was Arizona's amazing. my champion, if you guys I, care. I, I think what Arizona, is it going to take
3: for people to believe in Gonzaga? They're yeah, going to have to win the title, right? Yeah,
1: 100%. I mean, Baylor ah. hurt Gonzaga's belief badly last year. They and have more Arizona NCAA tournament campaign. wins in the last 10
4: years than any program.
1: That's like LeBron James getting all these points, playing on a losing team. Sorry, we title game. <laughs> yeah. I is not even close to the same thing. It's stat padding. Win something. Listen, next week when we do this, we're either talking about we're all going down to New Orleans yeah. or we're recapping the season. Uh, so there's a lot riding on these two games for for everybody in this chat and in this Zoom. Um, so, boys, I appreciate it. Johnny T-Shirt sponsored us. Gregory Hall ran that live. Vip coming off an epic podcast and Greg Barnes just doing Greg Barnes things. It's been on the beat live with South Carolina.